So last week, uh, we talked about right worship and praise. And see, this is what happens when you don't show up on Sunday mornings. You get another sermon. This is your punishment. So we saw that right praise is God-centered and not man-centered. It's trusting in the Lord for confident assurance. And it is for believers and not unbelievers. And today, we're going to get away from this sort of happy reprieve, this million-man worship service on the banks of the Red Sea. And we're going to look at trusting in God in the land of bitterness from Exodus 15, 22 through 27. Will you pray with me this morning? God, you are good and you are holy. And if that's all we know about you, we know enough to follow you in spirit and truth. Lord, help us to always, Lord, trust you, to always Lean on you, to look to you, Lord, to depend upon you. Lord, in times of richness, in times of wealth, both physical and spiritual, Lord, and in times where things aren't as fruitful. We love you so much, God. We praise you so much for all that you've done and all that you're doing in our lives. We ask that you continue to draw us closer to you so that we become more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Let me set this story up for you again. We come back again upon God's people. They're on the other side of the Red Sea after the Lord has just, departed, just parted the Red Sea and, and led them across. Their main enemy that kept them in slavery or at least in bondage for 400 years has just been, for all intents and purposes, destroyed. Then to celebrate, they basically have a, a church service on the bank of the Red Sea just outside of the wilderness. After this worship service, they travel in the, in the wilderness for three days. And they probably had little water. They probably had little water at least to, to mention. And, and then for three days of their travel, they can't find any more water. So they naturally are, are getting thirsty and, and probably tired from traveling. And they come up to a body of water, whether it was a small lake or a tributary, or maybe it was just leftover groundwater. And when they attempt to drink the water, it's bitter. Now, some people have said that this water had, it was too high in sort of metallic contents. Or maybe it was even sulfuric. Or maybe it had been poisoned because it was just there and stagnant. But either way, they come to this place of water, the, this place of relief when they're, when they're thirsty and they can't drink it. No relief. Then they go to Moses and they grumble. They go to Moses and they complain. They, they whine about their present conditions. Now, Marah was a three days journey from the edge of the Red Sea. Three days out of the waters being parted. Three days out of finally escaping their cruel Lord Pharaoh. Three days out of one of the most dynamic power moves by their Lord. And what does the Bible say they do? They grumble. They go and they complain to Moses. Now we often look at this situation with 2020 vision and we say, how could these people... 
that have had God's evidence in power so true and so firsthand. Just three days out, how could these people whine and complain? I think it would be a mistake for us today to discount what they've gone through. They went through slavery. They went through abuse. They went through fear. They had gone through the gamut of things over the last hundreds of years. And now, after God has rescued them, it seems again, it seems not again, it seems like he is, it seems to them at least again, like he has left them out to dry. Needless to say, they had trials. So we want to sort of be holier than thou in this situation and say, how can they do this? We need to understand some things of what they were going through. And if we don't understand and see ourselves in this situation, then probably we have too high opinion of ourselves. But I think if we looked at what happened and we diagnosed the situation, we can learn something of God's people then and we can learn something about God's people now. The people of God had just been saved from the Egyptians. And even though the power of God was true in their lives... It was still something relatively new. It was still something that they probably didn't experience on this level for the first couple of hundred years of captivity. With that being said, we can learn from the story of Mara and the people of God. A story of God's people and their journey to Mara and their eventually journey to Alim gives us much insight about the journey that God takes us in Christ Jesus. It really is a parallel of spiritual maturity. You might not have thought we were going that direction today. If you didn't, sorry. It's a parallel of spiritual maturity. And I think there are three ideas, three truths that we can pull out about growing in faith after salvation from the story of the Israelites at Marah. Now we talk about these type things a lot, but I want us to really pinpoint some things today, and then take some practical truths away. The first is this. Testing almost always follows triumph. Testing almost always follows triumph. After a quick look at our own life, we would look at the story of the salvation of God's people and confess that we have never had something this powerful happen to us in our own lives. This triumphant salvation by the creator of the universe and for his people We look at all God has done for them and say, well, nothing like this has ever happened to me. And so we can't relate, at least we think. Friends, I think that attitude is one of the reasons why we look at them and we say, how could they have not believed, how could they not believe in God because he's done so much? We would be wrong in our assertion, though, that something on this level has never happened to us. Is our story of salvation so dissimilar from the Egyptians. The creator God of the universe hears the cries of his people. He remembers his covenant with their fathers. Based on no merit of their own and in no power of their own, he saves them out of slavery once and for all. It shouldn't take much brain power to see that the Red Sea rescue is a parallel to our own rescue. With with Egypt paralleling our slavery and captivity to sin. 
the Passover and the Passover lamb comparing to Jesus and how he was the propitiation for our sin as we talked about in that time. He was the, he was the acceptable sacrifice. The Exodus as being paralleling the freedom in Christ and the crossing of the Red Sea being an image of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. How we were in slavery and captivity. How we were buried with Him in this baptism of sorts in the Red Sea. And how on the other end we were raised again to walk in newness of life. Israel experience, Israel's experience teach us, teaches us how we ourselves can live for Christ. Now we can take these parallels and we can match them to our own life. One of these truths that we will see from God's people today is that testing almost always follows triumph. I think we talk about testing and trials enough here. And I've told you the reason why. The reason why is because I don't want to sell you a bill of goods. I don't want to tell you that your walk with God will be all rainbows and butterflies. That it will be like unicorn, fluffy cloud playland or whatever it was I said several years ago. I don't want to sell you a bill of goods. I don't want you to think that it's all going to be smooth and easy. That the path is going to be filled with, you know, rainbows. And it's going to, you know, uh, anytime you fall, it'll be like some kind of matrix thing where you just fall a little bit and you get back up. I don't want you to have any sort of improper idea of what the Christian walk will be like. Because I don't want you, as often we still are, to be blindsided by trials to be blindsided by tribulation, to be blindsided by struggle. And honestly, this is why I'm going to keep preaching on the Bible and through the Bible, and I'm not going to overlook the section on trials, even though we speak of them so much. Because, friends, what I see in the life of our church and in the life of Christians in general is people who are constantly blindsided by something that they should already see and know. Now, again, I... There are sometimes trial that trials are too heavy and too deep and they they just take us, they just overtake us. And I understand that. But I don't want us to be blindsided. We will hear me say something like, Trials are a part of the Christian life, and I'll hear amens. And we'll read James. And we'll know that testing produces growth and steadfastness and perseverance. And I'll hear amens. And then I'll hear you pray and I'll say, Lord, please get me out of this mess that I'm in. (laughs) (laughs) Friends, I know that we need to hear about testing and trials because they constantly, me and you included, they constantly blindside us to the point where we're praying for a way out as opposed to a way through. And some of us do all that we can to avoid trials altogether. And what that creates is a society, and even a Christian society, of pansies, of wimps. Where we have no ability to be tested or tried. We have no ability to take differing opinions or different ideas. It creates a society of wimps. This is why my wife and I, my family and I, don't celebrate Participation trophies. Giving everyone a trophy is implying that everyone won, which is not even close to the truth. Because everyone doesn't win. Participation is not a win. It's good. It's something you should do. But it's not a win. Some people just stink 
And the trial of losing may bring them more determination or it may cause them to do something else and stop going down the path they weren't good at. Do you understand? I watched a show one time, and you guys are probably going to judge me for this. I can't even remember the name of it. But the premise of the show was that they tried out all of these singers, and they were horrible. And they took those singers, and they put them on an American Idol-type show and made them believe they were great. And <laughs> Yeah, okay, it was awful, sure, yeah. And at the end of the show, at the end of the show, they told them that they weren't actually good. Now, I may have laughed a few times. It was a, little, it was a very awkward ending, by the way. I may have laughed a few times. And I obviously don't think that deception is the way to go about that. But what it probably did for some of those people is it probably took them off of a path that was leading to nowhere and led them to a path that was leading to somewhere. And at a minimum, it gave them thicker skin to be able to handle future far greater trials. Someone should have told these singers a long time ago that they weren't good. So that they could face that trial and move on from it. And do something else. Or try to get better if it's a situation where you can get better. We've all known some people in our lives that someone should have told them that they should stop singing or trying to sing professionally. Now, you can all make a joyful noise here, and I don't think anybody's going to judge you. But I'm going to tell you if you don't belong on American Idol. I just want you to know. Friends, I will tell you it is more cruel to withhold truth and withhold hardship from someone to try to protect them in the temporary when you're doing more damage to them in the future. Trials, friends, are like this. Testing is like this. These are roadblocks. These are some that are definitive and objective, but they are at least definitive and objective measures of where we are going and what we should do in our life. And yet most people try to avoid, or most people do their best to dull dull down trials. When trials, friends, when testing, almost always follows triumph. The second thing I want you to see for the people today is that spiritual maturity does not immediately follow salvation. Spiritual maturity does not immediately follow salvation. Now, I've already pointed out this out, that the people of God were three days from the Red Sea crossing, three days from God finally removing their enemy, three days from the point of salvation, and now they are struggling. And what do they do? They go to Moses, and they grumble, and they whine, and they complain which tells us something about our faith. They were definitely saved by the grace of God alone in crossing the Red Sea. They had reached their salvation. They had praised God for it. And they were on sort of an upward trajectory. But they had experienced grace, but yet they had not grown in grace. It says something about faith in God in general, and that is that spiritual maturity does not always immediately follow salvation. Now, as we're saved, the Bible says that we have everything that we need for life and godliness. But that does not mean that you can go the next day and claim yourself after salvation and claim yourself to be an apologist. Or you can go the next day and claim yourself to be a theologian. 
Because spiritual maturity does not always or immediately follow salvation. How do we know this and how does this parallel to us? The first, we see that just three days post-salvation, they displayed immature behavior. One of the ways we know that they were still immature is because they displayed immature behavior. When these things didn't go their way, they grumbled. They grumbled to God. When these things didn't go their way, they lost faith. How do we know they lost faith? Because God was so faithful before. He has been so faithful now. Hey, the glory cloud, I mean the the pillar of cloud is still in the sky. It's still in the sky. And yet, they could not believe that God would take care of them now. They excelled in selfishness. What are we going to do? What are we going to drink? And they were forgetful. Friends, grumbling and complaining, forgetfulness of the works of God, selfishness, ungratefulness, and faithlessness are all signs of immaturity, and these are especially seen during trials. I know these people had trials. I know that it was difficult. But how could they, and how could we, forget all that the Lord has done in such a short time? Even if they forgot their past, all they had to do was look ahead and still see the pillar of cloud leading them. The pillar of cloud that was giving them direction. Common sense would have told you that it was no coincidence that this cloud had not dissipated. That this cloud had not gone away. As a matter of fact, during your most dire time, the cloud moved behind you. And when that was over, the cloud moved back in front of you and it's still in the lead. They lacked faith. They lacked faith in what he was showing them in in the present. And they complained about not being closer to their future. These types of thoughts and ideas are signs of spiritual immaturity. And maturity often comes along the road and down the road and not immediately after salvation. They displayed immature behavior, but another immature sign was who they went to in a time of trouble. They whined to Moses. One sure sign of immaturity is where they went with their complaints. Now the problem isn't when people of God have complaints. It is when they bring them in the wrong manner or to the wrong person. Although your friends and church leaders are good listeners, the Bible says we are to make our request known to God, not to friends and church leaders. Now they, they are a part of that. But they are the first, God is the first place. One sign of spiritual immaturity is where we turn when we are overcome by trials. The people of God went to Moses because Moses was their natural line to God, which is understandable. But they also went to Moses because they wanted someone to blame for their troubles. And they also went grumbling and whining. Friends, a sure sign of immaturity is when we're looking for someone to blame for that just little bit of relief that that gives us or when we grumble or we whine for that little bit of relief that gives us. And that's one of our first responses in times of trouble. When we pout around wondering why God hasn't given us better. We're okay to question God. We're okay to doubt even the plan of God. 
It's okay to even be negatively affected by trials, by testing, by struggles. But when we, go, when we grumble and we whine to the Lord, we're going to God with a closed fist instead of an open fist. Instead of an open hand, excuse me. When we grumble and whine to the Lord, we're going to God and saying, What are you doing? When are you going to take care of this? Help me. Not whatever your will is. Lord, this, this is awful. I hate this. I don't want to be in this. But I could not imagine, I could not imagine up one small percentage of the plans and the future and the dreams that you have for me. Lord, this, this is saying, Lord, I know better than you. This is saying, Lord, it's all about you. You have to bring it to me. Because I can't bring it on my own. It's okay to be affected negatively by trials and struggles. But when we grumble and whine to the Lord, we are going to him with a closed fist and not an open hand. We're saying, Lord, why are you doing this? Not here, no, not, not here, not now, Lord. Why are you doing this? Instead of saying, Lord, here is my life. Show me what you're doing. One sign of spiritual maturity is coming to God with open hands, ready to receive the truth he is teaching. Another proof of their immaturity and another proof that immaturity doesn't, or maturity doesn't follow, directly follow salvation is they were self-absorbed. One sure sign of spiritual maturity is that is being self-absorbed is a prominent characteristic. Being self-absorbed is immature because it ignores the plan of God. It, it, because the plan of God uh, it ignores the plan of God when the plan of God doesn't look like we hoped. It denies the will of God because we think we could do better. It is willing to sacrifice the future of God for temporal relief. These people were willing, willing to sacrifice a better future if it meant just some water. These people were willing to probably even, we have illusions of uh, Jacob and Esau, they were willing to sacrifice their birthright for just some temporal relief. They were willing to play along with God in their trial, but when they were done, they were done. When they had reached their limit, God's plan didn't matter anymore. One sign for us of spiritual immaturity is being self-absorbed that leads us to seek our own personal interest over the plan of God. The last point of immaturity is this. One sign that a person is immature, one sign that, a per, that immaturity follows salvation more, than, more directly than spiritual maturity, is that God's grace was insufficient. God's grace was insu insufficient. There's two ideas that kind of um, show me that for them God's grace was in, insufficient. The first is this, their forgetfulness limited the span on which past grace mattered. Their forgetfulness limited the span of which past grace mattered. Friends, one, side of, one sign of spiritual maturity is that the past grace of God endures in your life a little bit longer each 
trial, each testing, each tribulation. Do you understand what I mean? What God did yesterday becomes more and more meaningful today and for my future. What God did a year ago becomes more and more meaningful for today and for my future. Friends, the reason people don't go through trials like the Bible prescribes or like we often think we should is because the past grace of God means little to the person who is spiritually immature. The past grace of God is easily forgotten by the person who is spiritually immature. So we find a trial, we find a tribulation, and the first thing we do is we forget what God has done and we demand God do something now. What we're doing in that instance is we're telling God that His grace is insufficient because His past grace is not enough to keep us in faith and to help us endure. Another idea is that their selfishness impaired their ability to trust Christ in the present and in the future. Those are sort of one, two, and three. Their selfishness impaired us, impaired their ability to tr- trust Christ in the present and in the future. Their past grace wasn't enough to help them endure, but their present grace wasn't enough to keep them trusting in Christ until he brought better, until he brought relief. All that they were seeing them do, seeing all that they had seen him do around them wasn't enough for them to endure in Christ until he brought them out of their trial and their struggle. They see the glory cloud in the sky that had led them from day one out of Egypt, and it wasn't enough. They had seen the millions of people that surrounded them. They currently see the millions of people that surround them as a testimony to God's grace and love, and it wasn't enough. They saw presently that they were out of slavery themselves and out of bondage, and it wasn't enough. Friends, one sure sign of spiritual immaturity is that God's grace in the past and God's grace in our present and our trust and our faith in God's grace in the future is not enough to help us endure during trials and during struggles. I want to give us a few ideas today. I want to just leave us with some practical ideas that we can hold on to when we find ourselves in testing, when we find ourselves at least acting in a spiritually immature manner. I just think these are maybe seven ways that we grow from immaturity to maturity. Seven ways that we trust in the grace of God. Seven ways that we endure testing. The first is this. Don't take the easy path. Don't take the easy way out. I'm reminded of Robert Frost's Two Roads Diverged. Two Roads Diverged in the Yellow Wood, and sorry I cannot travel both and be one traveler. In the end of that, he talks about, he's, he's, he's at these roads and he's analyzing these roads. He's analyzing how both are relatively equal, and uh, he says at one point, and both, they, uh, both that morning equally lay and leaves no step, had trod in black. Basically, they, look, they both look equally beautiful. Both paths I could take. And at the end, he comes to the conclusion, 
I took the road less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Friends, I want you to know one step to enduring and testing, one step to spiritual maturity, one step to trusting in the sufficiency of the grace of God through Jesus Christ is not taking the easy path, even when the easy path is an option. Another, another, um, another way that we can grow in this testing, we can grow uh, in maturity, is um, not to self-medicate through trials. Not to self-medicate through trials. We don't lean too heavily on uh, things that the world offers as a form of relief. Alcohol. Advice. Self-help books. Friends, and you can find them, friends, and you can find them who are willing to tell you what you want to hear during the time of trial. We don't lean too heavily. That's all, all forms of self-medication. Now, this, this, is not a, this is not a sermon on, um, I'm, not an anti, I'm not an anxiety medicine abolitionist. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying, friends, if we dull down the trial till we don't experience it, what's going to happen the next trial? What's going to happen the next tribulation? We will either have to do the same or we will be so overwhelmed by it that we can't live without what dulled our senses before. Don't take the easy path. Don't self-medicate through a trial. Practice coming to God with open hands and not closed fist is the third one. Friends, that's a lot easier said than done. It's a lot easier to come to God and say, why are you doing this? As opposed to, why are you doing this? Show me why you're doing this. Show me what you want to teach me. Another way to grow in testing and to grow in spiritual maturity and to rely on grace during trials is to put other people first. I can guarantee, friends, we can always find someone who is at least on our level, or who has a worse trial or tribulation or struggle that they're going through in the moment that we're going through what we think is the worst of all trials. There is always someone we can put first. And from a practical standpoint, from a practical standpoint, when we get out of our comfort zone and when we volunteer or when we uh, go out of our way to check on somebody that we know may be going through a trial. It may not even be as bad as us. When we go our way, out of our way to put people first, from a practical standpoint, it makes us feel better. But from a godly standpoint, we are upholding the second command. To treat others, to love others like you would like to be loved. To treat others like you would like to be treated. To... Love your neighbor as yourself. Put others first. Don't sacrifice your future blessing for temporal relief. This again is very hard. It's very difficult. Because we will be in the middle of a trial and we'll say, there's the light. And others around you are like, that's not the light. That's not the light. Because I will tell you, in the middle of a trial... Anything will look like a way out. 
anything will look like relief. We can't sacrifice what God is teaching us in the testing for a temporal relief that will not mature us. It will not help us in the next trial because they will come. It will happen. It will not help us to trust in the grace of God. And that's the sixth one. Trust in the sufficiency of the grace of God. If I polled all of you today and I took you all aside after church service and I said, do you believe in the inerrancy of Scripture? Almost all of you would say, inerrancy? What is that? No, I'm just kidding. Almost all of you would say, yes. And if I said, do you believe that God is who he says he is? Almost all of you would say, yes. And practically, you probably live that way. But if I said, do you trust for your life personally that his grace is sufficient for every trial, every moment of glory, everything that you will come across in your life? Maybe you might say yes, but at least practically we live in a way at times that his grace is not sufficient. Friends, I want you to know, I want you to know that Christ stepped out of heaven and came to this earth. And the Bible says in John, John said, we beheld his glory, God's glory through the Son. And because Jesus Christ exists, it says in Philippians, in the form of God, the same as the Father, the same as the Spirit, He has every capability. He has every power. And He has every plan and will that the Father has. We need to find ourselves, when we don't understand why, praying more and more that God would allow us to trust and then just trusting. Just taking Him at His word. That's the six, and this is the last, and we'll go real quickly. If all else fails, if all else fails, obey God. Obey God. If all else fails, obey God. Friends, I want to tell you one one sure way, one sure way to find maturity in in your life, one sure way to thrive during testing, One sure way that God's grace will be sufficient for you is just to do what God says. To do what is right. And friends, during trials, you don't have to say, Oh Lord, tell me which direction to go. If the Bible says, Hey, here's the road map. Here's the direction. If all else fails, obey God. What happens at the end of the story? The Lord sweetens the water, providing temporal relief. But more than that, he takes them to Elim. Elim had 12 wells and 70 trees. It was an oasis in the wilderness. The number 12 and 70 are important in the Bible because they represent fullness, completeness, fullness. So whenever that's talked about something, it's it's full. It's the right number. But there was something more. There were 12 wells. How many tribes were there? There were 12 tribes. You might not know this, but there were 70 trees. 70 trees, one for each elder of the tribes of God. 
Friends, we must, know, we must grow in faith knowing that God's grace will help us in Mara and that he has reserved Elims for us along the way to the promised land. But more than that, or on the same level, we need to know that the people of God will learn much more in Mara than they will in Elim. We will grow much closer to God in Mara than we will in Elim. We have, told, we have toiled, friends, far too long on the elementary things. We must, we must pursue spiritual maturity. We must pursue the things of God. Trust Him. Obey Him. His grace is sufficient. It is sufficient. It was sufficient for Moses. It was sufficient for the people of God. In that time, throughout history, through the early disciples, for the early church, through the Reformation, it was sufficient for them. It is sufficient for you.